Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Modern Money Donuts, a show about ecological economics and modern monetary theory. Uh, I'm here with Stephen Hale. My name is Gabrielle Bond. I'm an organiser and an activist from Adelaide in South Australia. I'm the CEO of Modern Money Lab and an organiser for the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group. Um, we are, we have a great guest today, Paul Willey, who will come to soon, who's, who's also an activist and friend and colleague of mine and Stephen's. Um, but first, I'll pass over to Stephen to introduce himself. Hello. Yeah, uh, well, Gabby's just introduced me. I'm an adjunct associate professor at Torrance University here in Adelaide, as you might know, and economist with Modern Money Lab. Uh, we're going to talk to Paul about um, his um, participation in a campaign in South Australia um, for to, do, to address climate change, but not just climate change, other ecological issues too. Mm. But before we do that, I just wanted to remind you quickly about a few facts relating to climate change and carbon dioxide emissions. So if Shane can share the slides. Okay, uh, let's see whether I can work them. Yes, I can. Um, this slide on the left-hand side, you don't need to be able to see the details, but you can see that there is a wobbly line and then it becomes vertical. Now, that wobbly line relates to the concentration of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere over the last million years or so. And you can see that since 1950, that's the vertical line, we have gone far, far above the level of carbon dioxide emissions that there have been uh, not just since the beginning of uh, humanity, but for hundreds of thousands of years before there were uh, creatures uh, similar to us anatomically on the planet. And it's been us that's causing this. And on the right hand side there, you can see over the last 150 years or so, the upward sloping line, well, that's the, that's the vertical section of the line on the left hand side, that's rising carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, moving up towards 420 parts per million, uh, a safe level being about 350 parts per million, which mm. we have long surpassed now. Mm. And the blue bars and the red bars there just indicate the increase in average surface temperatures on the planet over the last, well, particularly over the last 50 years. And it's not just the statistics that bear out the relationship between carbon dioxide emissions and temperature. We also very well understand the physics behind it as well. So yeah. if you ever meet anybody who argues with you either that rising carbon dioxide intensity is not down to human activity or that there's no link between that and climate change, rising temperatures and more extreme weather events. At this stage in the argument, you can basically say they're crackpots. And it would be nice to say that um, at, at least our net emissions of carbon dioxide globally had started to fall because after all, we've been discussing these issues now, or our leaders have. For decades. For at least 30 years. Yeah. But unfortunately, we have made no progress at all. The peak globally for carbon dioxide emissions um, was uh, 2019. They dipped a bit because of the pandemic, as you can see here in 2020. But in 2021, they'd almost reached the peak again. And we are certain that the highest ever level of net emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere will be 2022. They are still rising. 
And we don't just have to get our annual emissions falling, which is vital that they start falling within the next two or three years, but our net emissions have to fall to zero before the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere stops rising. We have to stop it rising well before we get to 450 parts per million. And as I was just mentioning, we're almost at 420 parts per million now, because while there is a positive net flow of emissions into the atmosphere, the stock of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere will continue to increase and our climate will continue to change. Um, we have had uh, at Paris and Glasgow the goal of limiting global warming to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. This is now virtually impossible to do. In order to have even a 50% chance of this, Earth system scientists tell us that we've got a very limited budget mm. in terms of the amount of additional carbon dioxide we can put into the atmosphere. And when you look at our annual net emissions at the moment and the fact that they're growing, this means basically the whole of this budget, if, if our emissions do not start falling very rapidly very soon, will be used up within the next 10 years or so. And we can kiss 1.5 degrees goodbye. Technically, and technologically, we ought to be able to hold global warming below two degrees. But even to hit a two degree target as far as global warming is concerned, we need our emissions to start falling in the next few years and they need to fall by more than 3% per annum year on year until the middle of this century and beyond until we get to close to zero net emissions if we're going to hold global warming below two degrees. And we really have to do this. We have to do this because Earth system scientists like Johan Rockström and Will Steffen have uh, uh, um, shown us, have explained why this is the case and discussed evidence that this is the case, that we are close to triggering some tipping points, which once they are triggered, then uh, are related to each other mm -hmm. and can cause a series of events which could over the next century or couple of centuries take our climate outside of our control. So there would then be nothing really that we could do about it, perhaps for hundreds of years. And the, the tipping points to be particularly worried about at the moment are the disappearance of Arctic summer sea ice and the collapse of the Greenland ice sheet. There is evidence that both of these things are happening already and they are related to other tipping points like changes in the circulation of the uh, Atlantic, for example, which could trigger changes in our climate in the decades to come, which, as I said, could lead to what Will Stephan describes as hothouse earth mm. in the future. It is vital that we keep global warming below two degrees of pre-industrial levels. And then just finally, um, it's not just lefties like me that say this kind of thing. Um, we now have conservative financial newspapers like the Financial Times um, discussing the challenges that we're faced with, explaining to people that actually, if we had the political leadership to, to do so, we could be tackling this issue. We could be taking actions already, which would allow us to avoid extreme climate change and explaining that the problem, what stands in the way, in other words, is the politics. And I think it's over to Gabby.
now. Thanks very much. That's all we need to shut the slides for, Shane. So <laughs> thank you, Shane. Um, uh, let's have the the screen back to previous, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, we can probably do that. Yes, excellent. Yeah, okay. So that was very sobering, and I, I'm sure most of us have heard these facts before about the dire situation that we're in with um, human-induced global warming. Um, and we know that Australia is right up there, if not the worst, very close to the worst in terms of per capita emissions and our contribution to rising greenhouse gases. Um, and it, I, I, I want to just say every fraction of a degree counts, right? If, if you say 1.5 degrees is all but impossible, we have to fight for as close as, close we, as we can. If we can't yeah. hit 1.5, we need to hit 1.7. Yeah, or 1.6 or 1.55, you know, right. every fraction of a degree matters. And you can see, I just wanted to also mention in those slides, uh, on one of the slides you might have seen, there's two scientists who have gone to the extent of engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience to try and get, again, to try and get this message across. Um, and if you're on Twitter and you follow climate scientists, you'll see that there's uh, a rebellion in progress across the world right now where people are putting themselves uh, in in situations where they'll get arrested and just to try again to drive this message home that we really need to take action. Um, and going coming back to Australia, we are a global pariah. Within Australia, our state governments are doing a lot better than our federal government. And uh, South Australia is actually not too bad in terms of those those targets and renewable energy. Um, and I think, um, but obviously we need to do much, much more. And Paul, you're part of a group called South Australians for Climate Action. Could you tell me a little bit about this group and why you decided to get involved? Sure. Thank you. And thank you firstly for inviting me to participate in the show. And thanks for the great introduction. I think it's painted the picture very starkly and very clearly and illustrates um, the challenge before us. South Australians for Climate Action, which I'm involved in, we're a, a group of businesses, institutions and community organisations who've come together um, and we initially came together to seek a commitment from all of the political parties participating and candidates participating in the, in the um, recent state election to implement powerful policies that protect our community environment <clears throat> and economy from um, climate change impacts. What we, um, <clears throat> we're very avowedly nonpartisan. Mm. Um, we acknowledge that, and we're quite uniquely focused on the issues for South Australia. South Australia has a reasonable track record of bipartisan leadership on climate and energy policy. Um, and we certainly believe that we're well placed to both improve our future and build a new economy. We have a lot to gain um, yeah. by responding positively and forcefully to the change in climate. And now is the time, and you know, as, as Stephen's brief presentation made clear, we have no time to lose on this. Yeah. And now is the time to really innovate um, for climate resilience and carbon neutrality, and <clears throat> excuse me, and to do, to adapt our systems, our energy, our transport, our industry, and our agriculture 
to achieve net zero emissions. And I think if I might just add a personal note, what really attracted me to want to um, engage and get involved in this campaign is that our approach is quite comprehensive. So while we acknowledge that South Australia has been one of the leading states in the nation in the shifts to renewable electric electricity, yeah. and that we've got a current aspiration of achieving 100% renewables and renewable electricity by 2030. Electricity only provides, you know, a bit less than 30% of our total energy requirements. Yeah. And so yeah. we need a broader focus that also includes energy in heating, in transport, in industry and agriculture. And we need not only to think about climate change, but we need to think about, well, in addressing that, in protecting and restoring our degraded landscapes and environments, protecting and preventing any further loss of our precious biodiversity, yeah. and, you know, improving and being a lot smarter about how we use our land. Yes. And, and, and you know, aiming to achieve... Um, at least carbon and greenhouse gas neutrality in our business and agriculture. So we have got a fairly comprehensive program of action. We developed it and tested it with a number of experts in different fields. So that we feel like what we've proposed is a fairly practical and achievable program of you know, comprehensive program of action. We don't believe that we've got all of the answers, um, but that, you know, it's quite a decent start to address those pressing issues that Stephen so articulately outlined at mm. the outset of this, if this podcast. And one of the great things about this group is that it brings together what some might think of as unlikely allies. So you'll be talking to people across the political uh, spectrum, to businesses, to individuals, parents, uh, medical professionals, all sorts of people. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure, thank you. Um, and yeah, as I made the point, we've been quite avowedly non-partisan. What we've been saying is whichever government, and we now we now know which government we have, but hmm. this was prior to the election that we weren't concerned about which party was going to win government, but whichever one that it was, needed to get on and build on, you know, the record that we already have and really just do a lot more, a lot quicker, a lot yep. faster because yep. there is an urgency. So we have, at last count, we have 107 um, organisations who are signatories to our climate action statement and that program of action and around 70 prominent individuals. And... They, as you touched on, Gabby, they are quite a diverse array of organisations, everything from Zen Energy yep. to um, several Catholic schools to the Council for the Ageing to mm. um, Argo Deli to Rawson's Electrical to, you know, a whole mm. array of different um businesses, community organisations, and I guess you'd say not the usual suspects. You know, we, ought add, we, we ought to add, Paul, that we're, we're in South Australia, and so people won't know this, we've had recently a state election 
here and yeah. uh, we'll just change we now have a a labor government and people may also be aware although this is uh, we are talking about south australia now that australia is soon going to have a federal election and we don't know at the moment whether there'll be a liberal which in australia strangely means conservative yes or labor government after that federal election yet <laughs> but we do know that south australia has a labor government as Paul was just indeed saying. and, and <laughs> might i add that the array, the array of organisations that I've just touched on, and, you know, that, as Gabby said, that's included as well, you know, um, a whole array of different professionals and, you know, quite prominent individuals. It's really strengthened our case because... And, and what's happening with the, and many of those um, businesses and groups that I've mentioned, they've done pretty well all they can at this point in time to adapt their businesses to, yeah. you know, to, in a sense, build resilience for the, you know, the, the, for the future. And so what they're saying is, look, we're, we're doing all we can and, and we really want the government to lead on this and we're mm -hmm. constrained from doing more because we need more ambitious action and leadership by our governments both but in nsa in particular the state government and we've got a good yep. record and yep. we, you know we've got the ability to be able to build on that and there's no doubt that the overwhelming you know majority of people individuals businesses institutions of all kinds want this to happen yes and absolutely. so you know at at any government's peril to to ignore it really can I just tell people the web address? If you would like to have a look at what this group has achieved, it's really quite impressive. So if, you're, um, if you've got uh, a computer in front of you or a phone and you want to look up this website, it's fantastic. Uh, search for South Australians for Climate Action dot org. And it's all one word. That's right. No yep. gaps. And it's not a number four. It's F-O-R. South Australians for Climate Action.org. And you'll see on the front page of the website, there's this absolutely beautiful photo, which really shows you what a wonderful and special place we live in. And you can read about what this group, ha uh, what our, their aims are, our aims, I should say, I've signed up to it, um, and uh, some of the people that are involved. And it's a really great job that, that uh, what you've already achieved in such a short time. Do you know Fantastic. whether there's just whether there are similar groups in other South Australian states, or is it unique to SA? Um, I'm not aware, Stephen, that there's, you know, an exactly similar or you know a similar group. I know that um, because part of our group was linked with the Australian Conservation Foundation, mm, which is a big and, and the ACF, the Australian Conservation Foundation, have um, developed a program that's called Time to Act. And that's focused on federal politicians and asking them um, to sign up to a four-point program of, you know, committing them to action um, with regard to climate change. So yeah, there are some similarities, but we've gone a lot deeper and into a lot more detail really and and what we're proposing as i said earlier is a fair bit more comprehensive so i think to some extent we are unique um and you know and south australia is unique 
Yeah, has such a lot of potential. We have so much sunshine and wind and good. Well, and, and we're also of a scale, mm. I think, you know, in within the Australian Federation where we're big enough to demonstrate tangible results that can be replicated elsewhere, but we're also manageable and of a scale where you know, groups like ourselves can influence public policy. Yeah, and, and that's um, a really great thing to know as an activist, isn't it? That um, that you you can make a difference. A small group of people working together can actually yeah. have really big impacts. Yeah. But I mean, um, and as an example, the, the the previous government prior to the election provided a deep by, by virtue of the treasure through the treasurer provided a detailed response to every one of the 20 points that we outlined in our program. Now, it was it was a classic bureaucratic response, uh, yeah. ones that I've probably manufactured myself when I was a bureaucrat in, in days gone by. Um, so, you know, it was kind of like a grab bag of all of the things that, you know, possibly might relate and that were already, you know, in play and, and are being done and can be pointed to but um but you know i think it that why i highlight that is it indicates that you know we were being taken notice of that the government saw fit mm. to actually provide a comprehensive and detailed response to the whole proposal now it didn't support um all of them and i think if I may say, one of the points that will probably be a sticking point for both parties or and now for the new government is one of our um, points is to stop, to cease any development or to oppose any development of, of further gas, you know, new yeah. gas fields, the opening of any new gas fields or gas exploration. Now, that's a shared state and federal responsibility. Um, but certainly it's something that we're calling on the state to do. But at this point in time, um, you know, neither of the major parties are willing to sign up to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can imagine that the Labor Party gets a lot of pressure coming down from the, the federal Labor Party to because both of our major parties are pretty heavily invested in the so-called gas-led recovery um, which is something that we've been campaigning strongly against. And my um, one of the places that I work, the Environmental Defenders Office, which is a legal community legal centre network around Australia, uh, specialising in environmental law, that um, we've definitely been um, trying to stop new um, gas projects and fossil fuel projects through the legal process as well. With yeah. And look, could, I, could I say I think one of the one of the things that's worth noting too is that particularly with regard to gas and with agriculture, you're dealing here more with methane. Mm. And the important point about methane is that while its intensity is much greater than CO2, it breaks down much more quickly. Yeah, so going back to an earlier point that Stephen made about that, you know, even if we cease, you know, um, 
net positive emissions and get to zero, that the you know the the temperature will continue to warm. Yes. It will come down more quickly the quicker we can knock out the methane component of it because methane does break down much more quickly than CO2. Mm -hmm. So to me, you know, the gas and, and methane from agriculture, and interestingly enough, it seems to be mostly from cows burping, curiously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the front end rather than the back end. Um, Kangaroos don't produce methane. <laughs> well, they do. <laughs> you know, it potentially gives us that opportunity to be able to, you know, bring temperatures down a bit more quickly than otherwise might happen. And hence why Glasgow had a particular focus on methane targets. Mm -hmm. And disappointingly, something that Australia, to continue its sort of pariah status, refused to sign up to. Absolutely. Although, uh, as as you've been saying, really, South Australia is, uh, if not with uh, methane and agriculture, it, in in some respects, is a poster child for uh, yeah. addressing cl climate change. In that, I know this is only a sort of token thing, but we have had occasions in the past in SA when, as far as electricity is concerned, we've been 100% renewables. And I think it's right in saying that we were the first um, state economy of our size anywhere in the world that you can say that of. Yeah. But yeah. Um, there are many other places in the world which could move as quickly as South Australia and we could move more quickly. Of course, Paul is right mm. as far as methane and nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide emissions. Mm. Um, if we're talking about carbon dioxide emissions, uh, uh, moving towards more rapid electrification of of, uh, of, our, of power generally, and and uh, uh, um, what Paul's group is campaigning for is uh, is is very important. And bearing in mind we have people listening from outside Australia, I hope that um, I'm sure there are similar groups in many yeah. many around the world but I, I hope people that are listening might be um, intrigued in finding out a little bit about um, la local campaigns yeah related sure. to, climate change I should, to be fair and balanced too I should mention that you know while South Australia is, has a reasonable um, record in this regard Tasmania has actually led the way in, in Australia in at a state level in terms of renewables but that absolutely their economy is smaller so, so that, you know, I mean, Tas Tasmania has been pretty well reliant on hydroelectricity yeah. for a very long time, um, mm. and they have an ambition to actually achieve 200% renewable mm. renewables. So, you know, with an ambition of um, with their excess renewables being able to generate green hydrogen and also export um, renewable electricity. And because that's an important point to make, you know, all of this talk about hydrogen, it only makes any sense whatsoever if you're already well in excess of 100% renewable because it's a yeah. nonsense to think that you'd be making hydrogen from non-renewable yeah. fuel sources. It completely defeats the purpose. So people sort of bandy around these terms, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, grey hydrogen, 
the only hydrogen that is going to help us at all is hydrogen that's made by the process where where it uses 100% renewable energy to generate the hydrogen. Anything else is just not adding value at all. Well, I mean, you know, it's self-defeating because you're using a non-renewable fossil yeah. fuel to yeah. supposedly make green green energy. It's a nonsense. Um, so yeah, Which, you need you know you need to have excess um, renewables to be able to do that renewable electricity right. to even yeah. be in that sphere or in that field, if you like. Yeah. So when you hear um, hydrogen power, make sure you read the fine print. <laughs> it may not be as good as it's made to be sound by our, our um, uh, heavily sort of sanitised and greenwashed energy producers, which reminds me very quickly while, um, while uh, I remember we, next week's show, we have a renewable energy expert, Professor Mark Diesendorf, joining us to talk about his work and a new book that he's writing. Um, but uh, I just wanted to bring us back quickly to uh, the, the donut ec economics side of our show. And just, Paul, if you have any reflections on the work that um, South Australians for Climate Action is doing and the donut model, has the donut model informed what you've been doing or is it really just more of a... Um, a a, a kind of synchronicity? Um, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know that there's been an explicit consideration of framing our work within the context of the donut model. Mm. But I think, you know, there's a measure of synchronicity, to use your term, Gabby, um, because, you know, we've wanted to look comprehensively at all of the spheres where we need to be actors here and we wanted to think somewhat holistically and comprehensively about you know what this means for our community our environment and our economy mm. um and so you know we've considered things from those perspectives we've tested our program with an array of people who cover those kind of areas because, you know, one of the things just by way of example that we see is really, and is a feature um, of our program of action is fairly strong points around supporting Indigenous people, for example, to care for country and to care for people and to care for each other. And the mm -hmm. two things are the same, the, you know, of just different sides of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same as, you know, you can't really deal, address these issues without addressing inequality. Um, yes. yes. Which leads us on a little bit, I think, back to what we often say, which is that uh, action at the level of states and bottom-up action is, is, is very important. But what we really need in the medium term is leadership from the federal government because when we're talking about issues like addressing inequality, uh, having a federal job guarantee, investing in a Green New Deal and dealing with uh, uh, much bigger issues, I think, with uh, fossil fuels in some of our other states, some of the bigger economy states in Australia yeah. than, than SA, really in the end it's got to be the federal government 
that takes the lead. And what a pity it is that both sides of politics, as we approach the uh, federal election, have, um, I'm, I'm afraid, inadequate um, policies as far as climate change and these other issues are concerned. But pressure from the level of the states and from campaigning organisations like Paul's, uh, hopefully, gradually over time, as, as some of the challenges we face become more and more obvious to, to a greater number of, of people, will shift what is um, acceptable and uh, what is liable to be successful on a federal level too. And I hope before very long, we have the kind of leadership at the federal level that could um, turn carbon dioxide, dioxide emissions in Australia more rapidly downwards and also participate with the US and Europe and China and the other big emitters to make a real difference around the world and push us towards a sustainable and equitable future. Yeah. And look, That's yeah, could I just add too that, I mean, absolutely, the, you know, what we're lacking is the federal leadership. And as you rightly point out, Stephen, with regard to those you know, that policy and programmatic leadership that we, re we require. And when you think about, you know, if we're going to one of the greatest roles globally um, that we can have impact is by stopping our export, you know, we're the major exporters of fossil fuels, both liquefied yes. natural gas and coal. And, you know, and to get out of those industries and to transition to green, clean and renewable sectors, that requires the, you know, the capability, the capacity and the leadership of the federal government to do. Individual states don't have it within their, you know, scope or remit to be able to do that. Yes. And so it absolutely relies on federal leadership, which sadly is lacking. Yes. But we have an election coming up. Remember, we have preferential voting in this, in this country vote for climate action, make sure your enrolment details are up to date, use your vote. And if you're in the US and if your federal government is just as shocking as ours, then that doesn't mean you can't campaign at the state level and make a real difference as Paul's group is doing in South Australia. Could I Thank add, you. oh, sorry, yeah. you're about to wrap up. I was just gonna say, we now, we initially we aimed at, you know, the election, now that the election has occurred and we feel like, you know, we've been so successful and that the signatories to our statement are really wanting to continue to be involved and engage in further action. They don't see the, that, you know, things have ended here. Yeah. We're now in the process of arranging to present our statement to the new government and are seeking a commitment from the new government that they develop a comprehensive and detailed program and plan of action to address the 20 odd points in our statement. And central to that is engaging not only us, but a broad array of citizens, experts, activists, and you know, groups to be engaged in development of the sort of the policy and practice that's required to bring these things to fruition. So we see it continuing to evolve. More groups are signing up and we see it as very much a citizen-led process that, Excellent. you know, can have a great role in shaping, 
the government's future, you know, plans and efforts in this area, in across these areas. Thanks, Paul. That's really hopeful. And yeah, plan to plan to help out as much as I can and really happy to be involved in that campaign too. And uh, looking forward to seeing you for some sustainable prosperity action work, action group um, uh, events very soon. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's really terrific to well, talk to you. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. We didn't get to talk about your your career, which has been really fascinating stories. Um, and yeah. you know, uh, we one day we'd love to have you back on and 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 talk about some of those things. Oh, too. look, I could bore your listeners for ages, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for having me. All right. Thanks very much. Yes. So next yeah. week we're talking to Professor Mark Diesendorf, and don't don't forget to stay tuned for uh, Joe Firestone's show, which is coming up real soon. Absolutely. Just, just a plug for Mark. He is just so informative. He's the leader in our country in this area and he's well, much more worthwhile listening to him than me. Oh, nonsense. <laughs> nonsense. We will ask him, though, whether it's even possible for the world to transition to renewable energy quickly enough in order to address climate change. And I'm confident that his answer is going to be a qualified yes, but a yes. Mm. That's good. Something hopeful. Oh. See you next week, everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Thank Thanks. Bye bye.